welcome back. It's episode 59 of The Build. We're in our Matthias Norlinder era, our Brock Trotter time. We revisit our Mikhail Grabowski chapter, and we begin our Marty Jarventi moment. Some really fun ones in there. But the highlight for me is obviously Jarventi, a Finnish defenseman who appeared in just one more game than I did. That contest being a 3-1 victory over the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, which is how they appear in Cap Friendly, or not Cap Friendly, in Hockey Reference at that moment. Um, in October of 2001, that game took place. 14 shifts, just under 13 minutes of ice time, no points, no shots, a plus two, never touched NHL ice again, which I find kind of funny. Speaking of not touching NHL ice, Matthias Norlinder. He's uh, not playing for some reason. I mean, well, I think they sent him back down to the minors at this point, but they're kind of doing the same thing to Emil Heineman at the moment where they call him up and he just sits in the press box for a few weeks until they're ready to send him back for no apparent reason. Uh, just a step above your event, is Brock Trotter. Uh, two NHL games, both with the Canadians in the 09-10 season. He was a minus one with six shots. So Matthias Norlander might have the chance to be the greatest number 59 in Habs history. But the bar on that is so low, you might need to call the city to see if you're allowed to dig it up. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate you guys uh, coming back again. Uh, from the number 59 to the number 56, as you might have guessed by the title of this episode, I want to talk about Jesse Ullinen. Ull I want to talk about Jesse Ullinen. I should learn how to say his name correctly without falling over myself. What's the deal here? I think a lot of people are kind of wondering what the deal is with Ullinen. He's He seems glued to the fourth line. So I'll start at the beginning of this conversation that I think it always needs to start with, regardless of whether or not the fact that I like it. I have to say out loud that I like Marty St. Louis. Uh, any time you, you, you engage in any kind of criticism of anybody that you, you do in fact like in the position that they're in, you have to start by saying you like them. I don't know why we decided as a as a a species that this is something we have to do, but there it is. Marty is a good coach for this Canadians team. I think he's trying to win games every night while also keeping the bigger picture in mind. I really like Marty St. Louis. It was actually just reported this week that the Canadians front office was going to send Uri Slavkowski down to Laval earlier this year when things weren't going well for him, but Marty intervened, saying that the best place for Uri Slavkovsky was with Marty in Montreal. Now that Slavkovsky is playing first-line minutes with Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, that, de that decision seems at very least reasonable. But there was a time when, where that wasn't the case. It legitimately looked like he would have been better served playing in Laval. So I believe in the message and the process that Marty has in place. Again, it's frustrating to have to start every thought with the Big Bang and having to go back and, and relitigate every conversation I've ever had about Marty St. Louis in order to make a point, but here we are. So with all of that said, I believe he is not immune to the same coach brain that every other coach in this league has from time to time. 
it's that coach brain that has kept Josh Anderson on the second line, despite Anderson being an anchor on every line that he plays on. Now, I understand that the game against the Islanders and the game in Winnipeg from this last week have seen Josh Anderson's stock skyrocket, and reasonably so. Those were two of his best games of the year. At least the Winnipeg one was. Um, he scored in the Islander game, but I don't know if he had you know, a particularly great game throughout. I think it's I think people are looking at Anderson now and you know they're they're seeing the points go up and see now he's back. I know Marty said Josh is back about three weeks ago and he couldn't have been even more wrong. I'm not going to let those two games completely erase the the first twenty-eight that we saw from Josh Anderson, but I'm glad to see that he's turning things around. However, for the first twenty-eight games, his spot in the top six was unearned. And Marty kept him there because he thought that that was the best that was the best place for Josh Anderson to break out of that. I mean, remember just a minute ago when I mentioned how Slavkovsky struggled earlier this year? That was when he was playing with Josh Anderson. It's that same coach brain that, for whatever reason, keeps a player like Jesse Ullinen on the fourth line for most of the season so far. When I say most, I mean probably upwards of 90% of his of his ice time has been spent on the fourth line. Of the 11 forwards to have played at least 200 minutes for the Canadians this season, Ullinen is last in share of possible ice time at 17.1% according to Moneypuck. And he's not particularly close to anyone in that regard. The gap between him and 10th, so the guy above him, Tanner Pearson is the same as the gap between 10th and 6th. Ulanen has 6 points. I believe it's 6. I had 5, but it was before the Islander game and the Winnipeg game, but I believe he's at 6 points now. Despite minimal ice time, which is admittedly, you know, it's not a lot of points. But up until that, that Islander game, he had the same amount of points as Josh Anderson, who has played up until that game had played 250 more minutes with the first power play unit and better five-on-five line mates. Now, we saw a glimpse of Ulanen on the power play. Well, we've seen him on the second wave for a while now, but in that game against Winnipeg, you could see what he... You, you saw what he can do out there. Before the Islander game, he had played 12 minutes of five-on-four power play time. And his... Ulan's most common line mates at five on five are Jake Evans and Michael Pozzetta. Looking at the rest of Ulan's numbers, none of them really jump off the page. I mean, he he produces at a fourth line rate because he's been used almost exclusively as a fourth line winger, and he plays. I think it was Hattie Kalakesh on Game Over after the Winnipeg game who said, "I would like him to not play with guy and guy." And that's really what we're looking at when it comes to Jesse Ullinen is he's just playing with guy. I don't I don't say all this like, you know, to to say that we should absolutely be moving him up the lineup, but let's explore this. Let's let's take a look at what he has ahead of him in the lineup and what he has to offer. For starters, I think it's pretty obvious watching him that he doesn't play a fourth line kind of game. 
through the Islander, or up, up until the Islander game, Jesse Ullinen had nine hits all season. Nine. A single-digit number of hits playing on the fourth line. His shot-blocking numbers are kind of impressive. He's fourth among Canadians' forwards in shot blocks. He's not an elite offensive talent, but he has really good hands, good vision, and a really good shot that he rarely gets to use because, one, his teammates, his line mates, and his deployment. His deployment is, is very conservative. He, he starts more of his shifts in the defensive zone than in the offensive zone. You know, we, we get glimpses of, of that vision and his hands and his shot when he's on the power play and he's in a situation where he can use those skills. You know, the goal that he helped set up in the Winnipeg game, he was on the half wall that Cole Caulfield usually occupies. He was using his hands and he was moving his feet to to create passing lanes. He saucer passed down to um, to Anderson on that shift. And then, you know, Anderson kind of went to the net and then we had the longest goal review that I can remember. Um, so we see it. We see glimpses of it, but because of the the lack of opportunity, both in you know quality of teammates and amount of ice time, it's it's tough to it's tough to figure out what he can do at the NHL level. I still like after those two games, unless Josh Anderson can continue to score at this pace and kind of right the ship, I still wonder. If he's a top six option at this point, he might be able to build off those last two games. But I, I'm not going to check that box off until we see it. Because again, we're letting two games erase 28. I just don't, I don't see that that's a reasonable path forward for me thinking about this player. I know Marty doesn't like to move guys around a lot and he gives guys more opportunities to get out of the slump, but there is a, there is a, I think there's a maximum amount of positivity that can be drawn out of that. Because like, if you're a player like Ulanen and you see Josh Anderson struggle for a week and you see Marty stick with him, that probably makes you feel confident in that. Okay. If I were to struggle, I know I, I feel relatively confident that I would get that same you know level of confidence instilled back in me. But we're talking about a guy who struggled for three months, two and a half months. All the while Ulinen stays on the fourth line and doesn't really get a sniff up the lineup. He played one game, I think, on the second line and then was and if I remember correctly, I think that was the one in Boston that Montreal just didn't show up for. But then it's been right back down to the fourth line where he plays with Michael Pozzetta and Mitchell Stevens. And it's just, it's got to be frustrating. Like, because he's an offensively talented guy, he's going to be judged on his ability to, to, to produce offensively, but yet he is not given the opportunity to do so. And now that Anderson has put a couple of games together, you can't really justify moving Anderson down at this point. Maybe you can move Gallagher down from the third line and bring Ulan it up to play with Dvorak and Armia. But I, like, and 
that's a little bit better as far as skill goes. Those are guys who are playing a little bit better in the offensive zone. So as much as I'd like to see him get that bigger opportunity, I don't really know how much higher it gets than like the third line. Maybe there's a reality where Sean Monaghan gets moved back to center on that second line. And they move Evans down to be the fourth line center. To allow, you know, Ulanen to move up into that second line role. And maybe they, they, they finally scratch Mitchell Stevens and they put, they put uh, Emil Heineman in the lineup and we get to see him play on the wing. There are options there. It's just, it's sort of a, what do I want and what do I think is the most reasonable or likely thing to happen? And I really just think him playing on the fourth line for the rest of the season is the most likely thing to happen. But playing in the space where he does get that, that bump up to at least the third line, like if it is the third line, does that matter? I think so. I mean, just looking at the share of potential ice time that we talked about earlier, that's um, a stat available on Money Puck. Um, Christian Dvorak is the, the center on the third line. He's played about 27% of the possible ice time at 5-on-5. Five five. That would be a 10% increase for Ulanen if he just pl- he played more at 5-on-5 five five and nothing else was touched. We'd, we'd see more of him. I can't and won't guarantee that Ulanen scores more with a bigger opportunity. But what do the Canadians have to lose? They've had Ulanen on the fourth line for most of the season, and they're 23rd in goals per game. I think the I got to this point in in looking at Ulanen's stats and, and coming up with an argument for moving him up in the lineup, and then I asked myself uh, the big question, which is why should any of you even care about this? Well, take a look at Cap Friendly. Montreal has three players on their current roster who will be RFAs at the end of the year. Two of these players are arbitration eligible. Gustav Lindstrom, who I don't think is part of the long-term plan in Montreal, and Jesse Ullinen. While in Ullinen arbitration case probably won't break the bank for the Canadians, they're messy and teams always try to avoid those arbitration cases because you have to go into a, a, a... a neutral setting and try to explain to this player why they don't want to pay you. And look at it from Ulanen's standpoint. He's a restricted free agent with arbitration eligibility. He's 24 years old. He's a high second round pick, 35th overall. He should be entering the prime of his career, and instead he's just kind of wasting away on the fourth line. And not only just the fourth line, the fourth line on one of the worst teams in the league. I know Montreal is like two points out of a wild card spot, but come on, like that's not, that doesn't mean much to me to be quite honest. Like if you're Ulanen, like how do you even justify signing your qualifying offer? This isn't a, like, you have to keep Ulan at all costs argument at all. I, I just, I don't, even, I don't even know that he's going to have an NHL career worth keeping around, but that's sort of the problem, isn't it? Like, this is a guy who was picked 35th overall. He's 75 games into his career, and none of us really have any idea what he projects to be, because, like... Every time Marty seems to go and makes and make the the lineup for the night, 
like 56 is written in pen on that fourth line. That should be a problem for the Canadians, in my, in my estimation. But they seem to be content just like letting him play fourth line minutes until they're ready to move on from him. Because I don't think that they're judging him based on his, his uh, production. They, po- they couldn't possibly. I look at the game against Pittsburgh, which went to overtime. He played 11 shifts and, and had 7 minutes and 25 seconds in ice time. It's shocking. Like that, like, I know he's a fourth liner. He's playing on the fourth line. But the, the, the lack of a desire to try to find a way to get him more offense, to get him into a situation where he can play a more offensive role, it's a little concerning to me. So I hope they, I hope they revisit this soon. Um, because I'll be honest, I kind of feel like uh, I get Victor Mete vibes from him. Not in the sense that like, you know, he's that kind of player or anything, but Mete, you know, just stopped getting an opportunity after a while and requested a trade. And instead of trading him, Montreal tried to send him on waivers and Ottawa claimed him and they got nothing for him. So there's a caution, there's a cautionary tale here for Yes Yulinen and what the Canadian should try to get out of him. Again, I don't know what he projects to be. That's the problem. All right, let's check in on the crease. Montreal still has three goaltenders, and it looks like the market might be opening up a little bit more. Uh, on Saturday, Carolina waived Auntie Ranta. He then cleared waivers. Uh, that left them with uh, Pyotr Kachetkov and a call-up. They called up someone from the AHL. Frederick Anderson is kind of the injury to watch here. Um, he, not really even an injury. It's a health concern. He, I believe, has blood clots, and they had thought that maybe he would have been done for the season, um, leading some to believe that the, the Hurricanes would be joining the the market for a goaltender. Um, but Anderson apparently was just cleared to skate. Now, that's not practicing. That's not game shape. But he is cleared to skate again. The Hurricanes only have about $1.8 million in cap space. They're looking to move noted loser Tony D'Angelo to make even more space. Um, moving D'Angelo would get them close to a, the amount of cap room that they would need to get Jake Allen. As we kind of talked about in the last episode, um, Allen has that $3.4 million cap hit and a seven-team no-trade list. And I speculated that the seven-team no-trade lists are common to keep players from going to Canada. Um, since Allen is already on a Canadian team, I'm speculating that he has the six remaining Canadian teams and one free space. I'd be shocked if Carolina was on that list. But again, that's not something we'll know until a trade happens. Um, Speaking of Allen, he, he, his last home start came uh, against the Nashville Predators about a week ago. Um, interestingly, Edmonton Oilers assistant general manager Brad Holland, I believe he's the son of Ken Holland, was at the Bell Center for that game. Uh, last I checked, the Oilers are, in fact, a Canadian team. So if my guess about his trade list is right, he would need to waive that no trade clause to go to Edmonton. But it is funny, though, like, the thought of him going to Edmonton doesn't seem 
like if you're you put if you put yourself in Jake Allen's shoes, like the thought of going to play for the Oilers now is vastly different than the thought of going to play for the Oilers back in like mid November. Right? Like they just won eight straight. They're not they're not in the playoffs yet by any stretch of the imagination, but they they've absolutely put themselves back in the race. And, you know, count out McDavid and Dreisaitl at your own peril. I don't think that the Oilers are sending their assistant general manager to watch a game if they weren't heavily considering something. Um, maybe Holland was there to see uh, UC Soros from Nashville, but I, I just don't think the Predators are thinking about trading Soros at all. He's, he's too good of a goaltender. I don't think that they're trying to move on from him. Another interesting part of this whole goaltending equation is that according to Kevin Weeks, the Coyotes are exploring the trade market for Karel Vimelka, and there seems to be some genu- genuine interest, as there should be. He's a really good goalie on a really good cap hit. Um, so perhaps Montreal can try to take advantage of a team who tried to take a swing at Vimelka and missed. Um, Weeks also did the very Kevin Weeks thing shortly afterwards by tweeting, and this is a quote from him, further to my tweet below, the goalie carousel, and then the carousel emoji, is about to start spinning in the at NHL eyeballs emoji, which is just, I don't, (laughs) I find, I find the way that people like Kevin Weeks use Twitter to be very funny, like, who's this for, man? I don't understand. So perhaps th- maybe things start moving sooner rather than later, um, which is to say as soon as I hit re- like stop recording on this episode, we'll, we'll probably have eight goalie trades to talk about. All of this to say Montreal needs to trade a goalie still. There are still options out there to make that happen. One name that I've thought about um, that we're not hearing a ton of and they could absolutely use an upgrade in net is Ottawa. Um, both goalies in Anton Forsberg and Jonas Corpisalo are the third and 22nd worst goals against goals saved above expected in the NHL. Um, I don't think Montreal should help them because it's way funnier this way, but like they, they seem like a team that should be looking at an option in net. Like Corpus is not going anywhere. He's making $4 million a year for four years after this one. So if he doesn't turn it around, that's an incredible yikes of a deal. I, like, I don't think DJ Smith is a good coach, but the goaltending for sure got him fired. Like, league average goaltending would have kept them afloat. They've just been sunk by bad goaltending. So I hope the Canadians make a move soon that makes all of this waiting and speculation, one, worth it, and two, make sense. Um, because right now it's still not tenable. Three goaltenders in, his, in a, an NHL lineup is just not reasonable. All of these guys have been playing well enough to deserve to play more somewhere. If you're not going to try to risk it and send Primo down to the AHL, you have to make a move at some point, which I think they're going to. I just, you know, the the NHL, there's always issues with, you know, the trade market. I believe actually the holiday freeze, by the time you're listening to this, the holiday freeze might have already kicked in. I believe it's the 19th at, um, you know, 11.59 p.m. So this will probably wait until after the holidays, as it should. Um, but we will see what Kent Hughes and company are able to do. All right, from the net to the first line 
Uh, I wanted to talk about the first line because since Slavkovsky was promoted to that top line, two things have generally been true. One, fans have really loved the way that that line has been playing. I'm totally in agreement. That line has played particularly well. And fans have also been worried that they can't seem to actually put the puck in the net, which I think is a a genuine concern, if not, um, you know, based in anything other than fan anxiety, which I I do think is is valid in some instances. And this one, you know, certainly seems like it. There's a lot of money and draft capital tied up in those three players. It should be working. Why isn't it working? Um, of course, that was up until the game against the Islanders where Caulfield scored, Slavkovsky had two assists, and all was right with the world. But outside of that game, the problem still kind of seems to be percolating there. That line can generate a ton of chances, but it just seems like it can't score reliably, which is very odd for a line with Cole Caulfield on it. Um, against Pittsburgh, that line had a 76% goals expected share. Um, both the offense and the defense of that line was nice. 12 scoring chances for to just three against. That line should have scored. And yet, like we've seen on other nights, they just didn't against Nashville. 67% in expected goals. I think Winnipeg, they had one of their worst games and they were still over 50% in that category. So should we worry about this? Um, I'll be quick. My answer is no. I don't think that there's really any reason to worry here. And the reason for that is that I think the process is right. Um, first of all, I think Slavkovsky adds to that line what every whatever <laughs> what other coaches and Marty at times thought um, Josh Anderson added to that line, which he never really did, and that's really strong board play. Um, you look at the goal that they scored against the Islanders; it's a lot of what we've seen, but finally coming to fruition where the puck gets rimmed around the wall Slavkovsky goes down below the net or you know along the boards along the half walls and works the puck out he manages to get it to to Suzuki Suzuki manages to find Caulfield all alone in front of the net to me that is that line's recipe for success if they can do that with any level of regularity we should not be worried in any any way, shape, or form. Because Slavkovsky has already proven, you know, to to be, he's really learning to use his frame and to use his reach effectively to knock pucks away on the boards. And it doesn't, it never seems like he's just going in there chaotically. It all, like, it seems like his, his one focus when he goes into the wall is to come away with the puck. And he's been really good at it lately. Um, it's something that we didn't see a lot of last year because, as I've said several times on this show, he would just forget where he is. And that's a problem when, you know, the arena or the, 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 the rink is a certain size and you don't know what that size is. It's hard for you to win those battles on the, on the boards or in the areas just outside of the boards. He's, he's really learned how to play on an NHL rink, which I know seems like, you know, I can already hear Leaf fans being like, ha he learned the size of the rink, but it is a big deal for European players to come over here, especially players from that draft class. There isn't going to be a generational player from that draft class. 
every player that was picked was a project of some kind. And he's no exception. And I think the Canadians are starting to reap some of the rewards from him, um, you know, taking his time developing. But to get back to that, that first line, Caulfield is just sort of in one of those funks where, you know, goal scorers often find themselves in. Um, you know, we're not all that far removed from Max Pacioretty, and I know he's not the same kind of goal scorer that Cole Caulfield is. But Max would often find himself in slumps where it just seemed like nothing was going his way. And then he would explode for three goals in a game. I forget what game it was. I think it was a game against Carolina. It was either Carolina or Vancouver. I think it was Carolina, where Pacioretty had two penalty shots in the same period and he didn't score on either of them. Like, we're, we're not at that level for Cole Caulfield yet by any stretch of the imagination because I think he's playing well away from the puck, too. But it's just a testament to, like, how goal scoring can be streaky, even for the best goal scorers in this league. Again, think of the goal that we had in mind for Caulfield at the beginning of the season. I think a lot of people, myself included, said 40 goals makes a lot of sense for him. That's still, like, even if he, score, if he scores only a goal a game, like, he's not allowed to score more than two goals in a game for some reason. That's still 42 games where he doesn't score. And he scores in bunches, typically. So, like, we're talking about, you know, <laughs> potentially 50 games where he doesn't score a goal. And I know people are worried about Slavkovsky's points, um, but those are going to start coming when Caulfield starts putting the puck in the net again. If we look at, um, if we look at Caulfield's shooting percentage, he's at 6%, which is hilariously low. That's 10% that his shooting percentage from last, 10% less than his shooting percentage from last year. If he was shooting at the same percentage that he had last year, he would have 18 goals. Right now he's got eight. You know, so like, there's a reason to be very optimistic for that line. For Slavkovsky's points, you know, the argument that I have there is he he's only he's only just really started on this line for one and two. The line that he played on before coming to that top line was the new hook and Anderson line. I I don't even really count the new hook and Doc line because it didn't really exist. Or the the Doc I forget it. yeah it was it was new hook Slefkowski and Doc that's what that line was. As we said earlier. Like, that line with Anderson was horrible. It wasn't good. Newhook only really got going once that second line was rightly dismantled and Newhook was moved back to the wing. When Slavkovsky is on the ice, the Canadians shoot at 6%. To put that into perspective, if the Canadians were to get 40 shots on goal in a game, shooting at 6%, they'd score twice. That would be it. The Habs expected goals for Wislevkovsky on the ice is about 17. In reality, they have 11. So that's six points potentially that Slavkovsky doesn't have. And over the course of a season, um, that, that's the difference between a 19-point pace and a 36-point pace. 
So I'm not worried about that line. I'm not worried about those players. I've really liked what we've seen from Slavkovsky really starting to put together what it means to play effectively in the NHL. I'm glad he's getting that top power play line, a, a top power play billing. I'm glad that Marty seems to be sold on that line as a, you know, as an entity. I think a lot of folks are worried that at the first sign of weakness, he'll tear it apart again. But I think we've got to kind of, we've got to learn a little bit from what we've seen from Marty St. Louis. He doesn't like to punish guys for, for slumps. You know, he likes to keep them together. He likes to keep them in situations where they can break out of it, unless you're Jesse Ullinen for whatever reason. We saw it with Anderson. He wanted Anderson to break out of that. So I think we've got to kind of take him at his um, implicit word here. For the most part, I think Canadians fans and the Canadians themselves have, have have done well in that respect, in allowing that line to make mistakes and learn how to be a top line in the NHL. Um, I think Marty's going to continue to be patient with that line, and I do think the goals and points are going to start coming for that, for that line. All right, let's move down one line for a quick one here, uh, and then we'll wrap up the show. Um, the fourth period... Uh, reported recently that the Canadians may be interested in extending Sean Monaghan. Um, they technically can't start those discussions until after the new year. That's a rule in place for when you sign a one-year contract in the in the summer. Um, the, I believe the reason that's in place is that so teams can't go, can't effectively sign a player for nine years because like if Monaghan signed a one-year deal. He could then sign an eight-year extension with the Canadians immediately, you know, and get nine full years. For whatever reason, the NHL doesn't want you to do that. They want you to wait until January 1st. However, the reporting out there is that the Canadians have um, at least internally talked about the idea of extending Sean Monaghan, and they'd probably talk to his camp once they're eligible to. This is not something I'm particularly excited about. Um, it's nothing against Monahan the player. I I really really like Shanahan the uh, Sean Shanahan. No Sean Monahan the player. Um, I think he's a really great guy to have around this team right now. I think they got him at a pretty reasonable cap hit. But I he's twenty nine, and my most my most optimistic view of the Canadians playoff chances is that we're probably you know the rest of this season and next season and then maybe they're a bubble playoff team so we're talking about 31 year old Sean Monahan at that point I'm I'm all kinds of out on extending a player like Sean Monahan you need to capitalize on the trade potential that you have with this player. Because let's look around the rest of the lineup, right? We talk about the ways that this team is going to build a contender eventually. What other tradable assets of Sean Monaghan's value do the Canadians currently have? 
It's not going to be Brendan Gallagher. Tanner Pearson's nice. He's not a center. He's not Sean Monahan. Maybe Mike Matheson next year when he's a UFA at the end of the year, I believe. David Savard will probably have a nice price. But that's really it. There's not a ton of there's not a ton more to pick off of this this team for futures or, you know, just younger NHL players. There's not there's not much left. I understand the thought process behind keeping a guy like Monahan around this core to help bring them into the next stage of their development. And if you want to make this a yearly thing where every year you sign him to a one-year deal and then at the deadline you flip him to a contender and then back on July 1st, welcome back. We, we kept the number 91 warm for you. You can stay for another year until next March where we'll do the same thing again. That's fine. I have no issues with that. In fact, that's kind of almost preferable that you can keep cashing in on this player. But you've also got to look at it from Monaghan's perspective. Why would he want to stay? That's not to say that I think there's nothing about the current Montreal Canadiens or the, you know, Montreal as an entity. That there's nothing about those things that's, that's enjoyable or that's, um, you know, favorable for a free agent. But how many more productive seasons does Monahan have left? He's got a lot of injuries under his belt, and I know he's healthy now, and I'm not, to, I'm not saying that to say he could collapse at any moment. I'm saying that to just say that, like, those injuries will probably take their toll on his body over the course of time. How many more productive seasons does Sean Monahan have left? And how many of them does it make sense for him to spend in Montreal in seasons where he will not be playing for a Stanley Cup? Again, I, I really, really like the player. I've liked the stability he's provided to this lineup that... Could you imagine the Canadians right now without Sean Monaghan? Like, they'd be, like, borderline unwatchable because you'd, you'd, go, from, you'd go from that line of Suzuki... Caulfield and Slavkovsky. And then, like, Jake Evans is right now the second line center for the Canadians, but, like, he has a player like Sean Monaghan next to him. Like, they'd be, they'd be horrible. Like, borderline unwatchable, I would think. Just because teams could just send everything at that first line, which they still are doing, and the first line succeeding to a certain extent. But John Monaghan provides that depth that, 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 that this team desperately needs right now. But I just don't, like, if I'm the player, I don't know that this makes any sense. If I'm the team, I don't know that this makes any sense. Sean Monaghan's a player that this version of the Canadians cannot afford to fall in love with. They just can't. It's not something that, that a team like this should be saying it's worth more to keep him than it is to trade him to a contender for high draft capital or a you know a B plus prospect. So I hope I I hope I 
I hope I tempered that as best as I could. I really like the player. But there's just not a reality where you can talk me into re-signing him over trading him. All right. I think that's all we'll do today. Um, that's it for this episode and likely for the rest of 2023. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to wish you a safe and happy holidays. Uh, if the Canadians do something noteworthy between now and the end of the year, I'll hop back behind the mic to tell you about it. But as I stated earlier, the holiday roster freeze is upon us. I really doubt that anything crazy is going to happen. So it seems like a pretty good cl- place to call it a year. Uh, thanks as always for listening. If you like the show, tell someone about it. It's the best way you can help the content that you like. If you want more of me, follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Maybe It's Ian. The build is available everywhere you find podcasts, but please note, and you may see have seen this if you use the Google Podcast app. That podcast app is going away in April of 2024. You can migrate all of your podcast subscriptions to YouTube Music by going to the Google Podcast app and tapping export subscriptions on the alert banner at the top of the screen. Or you could use this as a chance to move your subscription to another app, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'll have a link uh, in the show to the show's profile in the description below, where you'll find links to other apps available there. Uh, the build is also on TikTok. Head there for trailers to the episodes and some other fun bits from time to time. The music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mug. Check the link in the description to head over to his Bandcamp page for the rest of his stuff. Be well, guys. Happy holidays. We'll talk soon. See ya.